Anyway, anyway. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to widgmo.com and check them out. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 81 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel we have AJ O'Neill. I'm an adult and I come at you live when I want. Merrick Christensen. Hey guys. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Quick reminder to go check out goingroguevideo.com to get a 30 minute video on how I went freelance. Uh, we also have a special guest on loan from the iFreak show and that is Pete Hodgson. Good morning from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. No way, really? No, not at all. <laughs> I, just, I just really like the name Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. That's a real place in a real province in a real country called Canada. Oh, it's a real country? Canada? No Old way. Whole country. Wait, I'm confused. <laughs> With people What in about it? North Montana? <laughs> all right. So you wrote this uh, article on Martin Fowler's blog, no less, about yeah. testing asynchronous JavaScript. Isn't that supposed to be, like, hard and stuff? Yeah, so I guess that's kind of why I wrote this article. It's um, So I've been hearing... So this is, like, what, like before, I, before I kind of entered the JavaScript world, I know, I've, like, I've been... People have been doing async stuff for a while, right? Like, so it's not like JavaScript is the first language or kind of environment where you have to do asynchronous stuff. And so in previous lives, I've done kind of C-sharp development and quite a lot of Objective-C development. And you still do a lot of asynchronous stuff in, in those environments because network calls take time and kind of trying to make a, a, a fundamentally asynchronous operation look synchronous is a, is a leaky abstraction. So it doesn't work out well when you try and kind of just make it look like a method call. I think JavaScript does a really good job of not faking it and making you embrace the fact that these things are really asynchronous. Anyway, um, so I've kind of run into this problem over and over and over again of like, oh, how do you test this asynchronous stuff? Testing asynchronous stuff is really hard. And I actually don't think it's that hard. It's a little bit more tricky than testing synchronous code, but it's not that much trickier. And I think people have this mental, I don't know, like this mental block where they don't feel like they can get past it's like something, it's this huge hurdle that you have to get past. So kind of part of my motivation for writing this this article was to say, look, hey, it's just testing. You're just kind of, it's this, you can use the exact same techniques you use when you're testing regular synchronous code to test um, asynchronous code. There's no magic. There's no kind of fundamentally different thing going on there. It's just callbacks, essentially. And then the second part of the article was a kind of an opportunity for me to show how promises because promises are a nice abstraction on top of asynchronous kind of callbacks, they let you test asynchronous stuff even easier, so uh, in an even easier way. So I, I, I'd argue with, with promises, it's really not that much more of a, of a challenge than, than testing regular code. That was a long answer to a very simple question, Chuck. <laughs> I was trying to set you up. So. <laughs> so it's really not that different from testing synchronous code is what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, so so one of the so one of the points I make in in the article is so the, I guess the big reveal or the big revelation that, that I think people need to have when it comes to testing asynchronous stuff is there's a fundamental difference between 
an API that supports asynchronousity and a an actual asynchronous implementation. So the example I use, because everyone knows knows this in in every JavaScript, or at least every front end JavaScript developer knows this example, uh, is um, an XHR request, an AJAX request using jQuery, for example. So when you make a jQuery, a, if you when you when you make a, an AJAX call in JavaScript. You call this method, you tell it, you know, I want to do a get on this URL or whatever, and then you give it a success callback. And then at some point in the future, that success callback gets called. So when you look at that code, you're like, oh, that's asynchronous code. But it's actually not the API that you're using supports asynchronous an asynchronous operation. It, it has the ability to return, to call that callback at some point in the future, but it doesn't have to be asynchronous. So you can just call that callback immediately. Your test code can take that callback and immediately execute it inside of the context of of the, the of the test, which is kind of essentially like I'm not sure of the right metaphor to use, but it's kind of like unrolling or flattening or turning this asynchronous API into a synchronous operation. Does that? I'm not sure how. Yeah. Are there are there any risks? I know that they always say that you should. Turn, call asynchronous events on the next turn of the event loop yeah, so yeah. you don't lock people, right? It's partly just, yeah, for that thing of like wanting to, to keep the event loop spinning um, frequently so you don't kind of lock up the, the UI, that kind of thing. But sure. it's also uh, because there's, an, there's, there's a very subtle, well, not very subtle, there's a subtle kind of ordering issue where, and I, I learned this, I didn't realize this when I was first writing this article, and then as I was writing it, I was doing some research and I was looking at Dominic, Dominic the Nicola, I think that's how you say his name. He was writing about this and, and well, he was in, in his promises spec, he actually explicitly states you need to do this. And the reason why uh, you, you always should defer to the next turn around the event loop is because um, otherwise the order in which things are evaluated will be different uh, depending on whether you call the, whether you do it in the same run around the event loop or a second run. So, um, and if your, your AP, the, the client of your, of this asynchronous API shouldn't have to think about whether it's, at, it's fundamentally asynchronous or, or synchronous. So you kind of want to maintain that abstraction. You, you want this, even if this API, even if the implementation of this async looking API is under the covers actually kind of synchronous, you still want to do that extra turn around the event loop because it means that the order in which things uh, callbacks are executed will always be the same, so you don't have to think about that as a client. Right. So in Node.js, they actually made the change. I think it was somewhere between point six and point ten. They made the change to the event emitter because people had problems like that. Because you could you could assign events to your event emitter before your data was ready to come through, and then if the backend was synchronous, then it would be firing. Yeah. I mean, cause, cause there's a lot of cases where you, you assign your callbacks and your event handlers up in, you know, your first 10 lines of code. And then after that, you do something that's supposed to, supposed to cause the data to start flowing. But if you assign the event handler and it immediately executes, then you might miss data. Yeah. Or it can happen the other way around where you assign your event handler just after you say yeah. start 
And if it's synchronous on the back end, then you could miss all of your event handlers that way as well. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's the that's the really good example. That's that's the that's the prime so, example. Right? So, Pete, let me just make sure I'm clear. What you're saying is that if you have multiple code running, they and they're being scheduled on the turn of an event loop, then they'll be scheduled in a particular order and then guaranteed to execute in that order. Whereas, if you're just running through the code synchronously the code will behave fundamentally different because you're going to invoke those things immediately, whereas they might have been scheduled behind something else. Yeah, well, I think it, I think that the main difference there is that thing of when you, in the same turn through the event loop, you fire off something asynchronously and then you do some other prep work. Now, normally that's fine to do that other prep work after, kind of after in air quotes, you've, you've started the event because you know that you, all that prep work you're doing after you've initiated the asynchronous call will by definition be done before, sure. before the callback. But, but if you, if you're doing, if you're responding to that, to that asynchronous thing in a synchronous, like in, a, in the same turn through the event loop, then those all bets are off. So you get that, that issue where you could, you, your your prep work could run after the sure. actual callback has called, sure. so so the order of execution isn't guaranteed. So in a lot of this code, where you take async sort of examples and you make them run synchronously, that wouldn't work unless you ran it on the next turn of the event loop, yeah. right? Yep. So and do the do the promises when you're when you're using the promise library like Mocha is promised? Your article touches on that. Does that guarantee that it'll happen on the next turn of the event loop? So people's code that they are testing can have that guarantee. Yeah, so that's that's a, that's a great question. So it is part of the promises plus spec that you never um, resolve a promise or reject it on this on that initial. You always defer uh, to the a subsequent turn of the event loop. So it's actually part of the spec. Now, uh, if you're using jQuery promises, then um, good luck because that's not. <laughs> True. With uh, so this is one of the uh, you know a great example of why you shouldn't be using jQuery's promise uh, implementation def- or deferred. Uh, I don't think that they they actually honor that. So they will immediately resolve a callback on the same turn through the event loop, which means that you can subtly you can have some a bunch of subtle bugs in your code. Yeah. That you don't don't understand. That's particularly dangerous because. Probably the first time you call it where it is actually async, they'll lazily call it. But once the value is resolved, they'll synchronously call it. Yeah, that's yep. that's 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 odd. One of the well, both in Node and in the browsers, they're implementing set immediate, which is like set timeout, but it runs in the same tick of the event loop, so that you don't lose efficiency. So it's not like you have that four millisecond wait time or you're doing any extra processing. So if you have a situation where the code could run synchronously, you don't lose anything to the event loop because what it actually does is it pushes it on a stack so that when the event loop has neared completion, it'll go check to see what is in the immediate stack. And before the loop finishes, it'll go through the immediate stack. And if anything in the immediate stack sets immediate again, then it'll go back into the immediate stack. So it does introduce a possible problem that's highly unlikely that you get an infinite loop by setting immediate inside of a set immediate or a (laughs) process.nextic, but it does make it so that you don't have to worry about losing efficiency with putting something into the event loop that doesn't need to go into the event loop. And I suppose I didn't know it did that. Yeah, that's 
that's great for testing node code, but but it's kind of not so great for testing browser code. Well, same, same deal though, right? So it's, I mean, the browser, you've got set immediate in most modern browsers. If you're using a promises library, then you don't even have to worry about this because it's handled by the library, right? So right. if you look inside of Q, for example, it uses set immediate if it's available. If it doesn't, it uses like three or four different mechanisms to, to do this like efficient run it kind of outside of this event loop and it will use whatever's the most, you know, it's basically, it's like jQuery, right? It kind of shims all of the weirdnesses of the, polyfills the weirdnesses of all the, the the browser implementations and just does something efficient. And you as a developer don't have to worry about all of this boring details of browser incompatibility. Right. That's the other question I wanted to ask on the subject of efficiency. Where I'm at, we have a ton of asynchronous tests and that's in large part because we use AMD, and sometimes that means that we need to reload the same AMD files to get a clean state or whatever because we're not doing constructor injection or whatever you want to call it. But in general, it seems like asynchronous tests, asynchronous tests are just going to be slower, right? Because you always have to run on the next turn of the event loop, which in a lot of browsers does incur that setup time. And there's also all the overhead of having, if you're in Mocha, having to call the done function, or worse, in Jasmine, you're pulling. And I'm wondering, is it better to just try and decouple your asynchronous code from your synchronous code than try and figure out how to test the asynchronous code? Yeah, that's well. There's a, there's a few different things in there. So, so for a start, I think uh, in the grand scheme of things, if you've got so many unit tests that your um, that four millisecond wait time is making your test slow, then you're in a pretty good spot, right? Like for, for unit tests, I think this is this isn't really a problem. Even if you are having to incur like a four millisecond penalty, it would be great if you weren't having to. And if you're using if you're running these unit tests, so well, I've got like about seven different things that I want to say. I should write these down or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one of the things is your unit tests probably shouldn't be running in the con. Well. I would argue that most unit tests shouldn't be running in the context of a web browser anyway. They definitely shouldn't be dependent on running in like an, an older version of a browser. Like if you need to run your unit tests in IE, apart from like maybe one or two, then I'd argue maybe they're not unit tests. They're a different type of test. And I, and I would also kind of say on a bigger point that there's this kind of concept of the testing pyramid where most of your testing should be those low level unit tests. Um, I could, go off on a tangent for like four hours on this so i'm gonna, I'm gonna love, stop, stop that. well i'd love to so i think i must inter, uh, I, I think i don't understand you because it seems to me that the whole benefit of tests right is to be able to make sure your code works yeah and in in our world uh in web development part of that is having so many different platforms to support so many different browsers yeah so it seems to me that having your unit tests not be able to run in well, they will run. They'll just run slowly. Oh, I mean, okay, but the, okay, the sure. point the point I'm making is if you if you feel the need to run them in every browser because they perform differently, then they're probably not a unit test, right? They're they're probably a test of how your they're an integration test of some time. They're testing how your code interacts with its dependencies, and in this case, the dependency is the the DOM or the API provided by the browser. So I would say that's a different type of test. It's probably, um, it's, if, if there are cases where you, you, your code has to do things differently for different browsers, then definitely you should have tests that, that verify that things work in different browsers. And, you know, I'm sure jQuery has this crazy 
test suite that runs in all the different browsers and make sure that everything works the same way. But sure. for, for, I would argue that like you should be trying to push all of that integration y stuff in your code base out to the sides, the periphery of your code base, right? Like just like you don't want Ajax calls littered all through your code, you don't really want DOM calls littered all throughout your code. You don't, you don't yeah. want, you know, so that's that, that, the sure. point. I, I guess the, the, my point is, most of your unit tests are going to be focused on stuff in the that, that stuff in the middle, your your actual application domain, and most of that stuff doesn't really care whether it's running in the browser or running in Node, whether it's running in a modern browser where you can use set immediate or whatever. So I, I guess that's that's one point. But I think um, one of the things you said was 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 really really good, uh, a really really good point to bring up is this idea of like trying to push the asynchronous or trying to constrain what stuff is asynchronous in your code base. Um, and that's like a really old, well, not really old, old by computer standards, I suppose. That's a very well-established um, idea of when you're doing automated testing. Try to separate out the thing that fundamentally is asynchronous from the code that just kind of interacts with asynchronous things. So if you've, if you've got like a tax calculation that um, needs to make a service call and then also make another service call and then calculate some tax based on those results. It's worth separating out the service call bit from the tax calculation bit so that in order to ta- test different tax calculation algorithms, you just have this synchronous API that you can do all the different edge cases and, and test the snot out of it with a bunch of synchronous unit tests. And then you have like two or three asynchronous tests that test that, you know, you get the service, you get the result from this service call and the result from this other service call and you interact with the tax calculator. Sure. Which is so more of an integration test. Yeah. 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 And you don't care about that tax calculator. The, the only stuff that you should be testing in an asynchronous way is stuff that is fundamentally asynchronous. And there's not that, like, I guess it depends on the size of your JavaScript app, but if it's a reasonable sized JavaScript app, most of the stuff you're doing is, or most of the stuff that you want to test at a unit level is business knowledge, business logic and how you interact with APIs. And I don't think most of that is actually that synchronous. That's part of the, the kind of the argument I guess I make at the, at the end of this article is, is you don't actually have that much fundamentally asynchronous yeah. stuff in your code. If it you're, if you're like, writing a library, it's different, but if yeah. you're writing an app, you, you generally don't yeah. think. It seems like, I guess what you're saying is just repeat it so I understand it. If you have a user controller, a lot of people would just call into Ajax or call into HTTP service or whatever and go get the user they want to represent as a model for that. Whereas a fundamentally more testable way would be to just inject a user instance into that controller, whether via constructor injection or whatever. And then that way, everything that that user controller does with that user model or whatever is not necessarily asynchronous. And now testing the user controller doesn't have to be asynchronous either. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Got it. Yeah, and, and, and the other, and I guess part of the point I make in this article as well around promises is like, let's say you, rather than you, let's say your user controller can't actually have that user injected in and the user controller has to go and do a lookup. At some point, that's going to be an asynchronous operation and, and that asynchronousity kind of leaks in to the fact that you can't kind of make the user lookup look synchronous in JavaScript. You can't you know, have it block and wait for the results to come back. So you have to embrace the fact that it's asynchronous. But if you're using, um, you're using promises, then what you can do is just like return a promise and interact with that, interact with that promise and, and how that promise it resolves, how that kind of 
asynchronous stuff unwinds is not your concern inside of the user controller. And because it's not your concern inside of the user controller, when you're testing that thing, you're very free to, 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 to mess around with that promise and kind of fake and stub and mock that stuff out and return a, and simulate different scenarios without actually having to do anything asynchronous. Right. Uh, you know, do you don't have to stand up a server and have fake results coming back from a server somewhere. Right. Do people use the same, you know, promise implementations for testing as they do for uh, application code? Yeah, I mean, so my sample size of one being me, yes. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I can't see why you wouldn't. I think probably it's, it's, it's probably safer to use the same implementation just in case there are any weird kind of subtleties um i can't i can't really think of a reason why not to apart from if you're using j again i'm going to bash on jquery i love jquery i just don't really like the deferred implementation if you're using jquery as deferred then that would mean that in all of your tests you need to load up the whole of jquery or figure out a way to kind of isolate the deferred implementation um so maybe if you were using jquery deferred then you might want to look at something else um for your tests but actually I, I, I think just fundamentally, if you're using jQuery deferred, you're, you're going to have a bad time. So just don't use that. Use, sure. use something else or wrap all of your jQuery stuff with, with Q or something like that. Does Q, et cetera, Q is kind of, it seemed like Q is the blessed promises library that everyone likes. We've had those guys on and they're just, yeah. they're just awesome guys, but can Q wrap up jQuery objects? Can mm-hmm. RSVP these libraries all just, do you just pass it into the constructor or? Yeah, there's a, so there's an example near the top of, or somewhere in this article, uh, q.when. So if you say q.when and pass it a, a jQuery promise, it will just wrap that up and isolate you from all of the gunk and bad implementation. So, um, yeah, it's very, very, I mean, one of the things I really like about the Q's kind of philosophy is they just quietly make their stuff work with the crappiness of the world rather than like they don't, Rail, I, I don't know, like, maybe they would disagree with me, but the impression I get is that they're, they're comfortable with explaining why jQuery is doing it the, the wrong way, but they won't say, you know, and you should never use jQuery. They uh, embrace the fact that people are going to be using jQuery, and so let, we'll just happily, you know, help you fix that issue. Like, I, I really like that about, about Q. And they yeah. do the same thing for Node. They have, like, a bunch of helpers that let you treat Node style callbacks, um, convert map node style callbacks to and from, uh, queue promises. Mm-hmm. So I think they do a great job with that. So I, back to, back to the testing asynchronous JavaScript. I know a lot of our listeners will want to hear your opinion on this. And that's what, what sort of test runners are better for testing asynchronous JavaScript and which ones would you avoid? So that's a good question. So. I've historically used Jasmine a lot just because I guess when I first started doing JavaScript, it was pretty much the, the only one I, I found that I, that seemed, that seemed kind of reasonable. I think nowadays, if I was starting a new JavaScript project, I would probably go with Mocha. So there's a few reasons for that, but when it comes to async, the biggest thing is that Jasmine's way of dealing with async is just really kind of funky, right? You have to, like the API for, yeah, for for doing a, anything asynchronous is really really. Yeah, it's so, like a po- a polling mechanism. Yeah, and you have to kind of define two functions and say this is the running. Fu- I I mean I I kind of looked at it briefly and I was like, 
well, so I looked at the way Mocha did it, and then I looked at the way Jasmine did it, and I kind of was like, well, why would I want to do it the way Jasmine does it when Mocha seems a lot easier to use? So, like, to kind of step back a little bit, the, the, the issue there is, the fundamental issue is, if you're doing this stuff where you're doing asynchronous, you're testing asynchronous stuff, so you're you're waiting for it to go a second time around the event loop or some subsequent time around the event loop, um, all of your tests by default are going to run through in a single they're synchronous. They're all going to execute in a single turn through the event loop. And so if you're trying to assert on something inside of a callback, then that callback will just never be, by default, that callback will never be executed because it's, it'll, it'll be called back in a subsequent turn around the event loop. And by the time that callback executes, your tests are done. Unless you tell your testing framework in some way, Hey, uh, I'm waiting on a callback before I'm really done testing something so that's the challenge that jasmine has and that well, all of these test runners have is how do i cope with the fact that i don't actually know whether the tests have finished or not like have all of my assertions evaluated have i checked the state of the world because they the, the test runner has no way of knowing by default like is there still stuff that's kind of running when all when it's just callbacks on subsequent turns around the event loop so so jasmine deals with this in this kind of weird way Mocha's way of dealing with it, which is pretty, pretty neat, is um, when you're defining each test, Mocha will pass in this done uh, function. So it's a, it's passed into your, your testing block, your it block. And then you're responsible for calling that function to tell Mocha, I'm done with this test. Like all of the, my callbacks have fired, all of my expectations have been checked. I'm ready to move on to you know, this test has result has resolved itself. Right. So, so that's the default thing that you can do with with Mocha is just you you say my function my my it block takes a done argument, and then you once you're done with all of your asynchronous stuff, you you execute that function and 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 the test either passes or fails. Um, and then there's a couple of really nice things that you can mix in on top of that. So this thing called Mocha is promised, which is by Dominic. Dominic. Yeah. Mr. 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 Promises. So that, that adds, it kind of extends Mocha slightly so that if you return a promise from your test, Mocha takes that as a hint that this promise needs to resolve before my test is resolved. So now you don't have to mess around with duns. You don't have to explicitly call them in your tests. You just kind of return a promise back to the testing framework. And the testing framework knows that if you've returned it a promise, then it has to wait for that promise to resolve or fail before the test is considered done. Got it. Got it. And this is a really great example of why promises are such a good value add on top of just low-level language stuff like callbacks, because the promise is a thing you can hold in your hand and pass around back to, you know, it's a variable you can assign and, and return from functions. <clears throat> that encapsulates the, it reifies, if you want to use a fancy pants word, it, uh, it kind of captures the concept of this asynchronous operation. And now that you've got that thing as a variable, like in your language, you can do loads of really cool mm-hmm. stuff on top of it. It's, it's such a big win to be able to do that because you can build all of these frameworks and tools and extensions and helpers right. once you've got that thing in your hand and you can start messing around with it. Right. And, and on that note, I think promises are being implemented in JavaScript at this point in time, aren't they? Like baked into the language? I think they are, yeah. 
Yeah, I think there's, um, so Dominic, Mr. Promises, actually, I think just in one of the committee doodaddy things that I don't really pay much attention to, he, they just, um, kind of initially approved or something a promises spec that him and, uh, some other guy whose name I can't remember. Probably Chris Cole. No, it wasn't Chris. So I think it's a guy who's been in the, in the committee, whatever it's called, TC bloody blah. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember his name, but anyway, Dominic kind of was championing that and then someone else was, was helping him with it. I was reading, I was, I was reading the committee notes the other day and it's, it's very, very cool to see it be pushed, be pushed through. Yeah. Because once, I mean, once it's out of user land and actually implemented in the platform, then suddenly people can guarantee their tooling around a certain spec. Yeah. And again, once you, once you're like capturing that thing and passing it around and now the, the runtime, the native, performance runtime has this insight into what you're doing and it can do all sorts of crazy low level optimizations. That's awesome. So you, you can imagine like V8 and, and all the rest of them are going to be able to do a lot more smart stuff once they have this object that represents, uh, you know, an asynchronous computation. They can optimize, you know, all of this stuff of using set immediate and stuff like that will go away. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering, do you think there's something to Jasmine? almost intentionally making it difficult to test asynchronous code mm. to discourage people from having asynchronous code? I don't know. I mean, I my, can my, share my viewpoint is you, in other languages, maybe you can do that. But with JavaScript, you don't have any options, right? You can't block, you can't spawn a thread, you can't do anything. You have to, anything that doesn't, that cannot be, anything that touches the outside world, essentially, has to be asynchronous. You can't avoid it. So... Yeah. It seems a bit, it would seem a bit of a funny philosophy. My, my, my guess, my take as to why they do it that way is just the, the baggage of a, of a very mature code base that, you know, reasonably mature code base that. Right. It's, it's hard to change that stuff. And it's, yep. and it's got a lot of, um, my sense is that like Mocha is, a, is, a, is, um, got one strong opinionated maintainer who's happy to just kind of go in there and make big changes. But Jasmine is, has had a few maintainers over time and it's, it's a large code base at this point. Um, yeah. Yeah. They'd break a lot of people if they just switched to. Yeah. Got it. So were you typically testing this on like a, a rails backend or a node backend or I guess it doesn't prob- probably doesn't really matter. Yeah. I mean, that's my, my point. All of this stuff that I'm talking about is really about unit tests. So the whole point here is that you don't just because it, in production, it's an asynchronous operation, a truly asynchronous, like I'm hitting the network or I'm waiting for a mouse click or whatever type operation does not mean that in your unit tests, it has to be asynchronous. So you don't need to stand up a fake server. You don't need to stand up a, a little whatever. Uh, all you need to do is, is, is fake out the asynchronousity in your unit test. So you don't need to do any, um, any backend stuff at all. You, in, you, you probably want other types of tests that are testing you almost certainly want other types of tests that are contract tests that are testing that you're talking to, you're sending the right questions to your backend server and getting the right responses and all that kind of stuff. But that's a different type of test. There you're actually fundamentally testing something that's asynchronous rather than, rather than faking out the asynchronous parts while you're testing stuff that's not fundamentally asynchronous. Right, you're acceptance testing or integration testing as opposed to... Um, Unit testing. Yeah, I mean, like the definition, you know, one of the definitions of a unit test is it doesn't touch the outside world, right? It doesn't hit the disk, doesn't hit the network, doesn't talk to a database, doesn't write to a screen. So 
if you're not doing any of that stuff, in if the thing that you're testing isn't doing all of that stuff, then you shouldn't have to do anything fundamentally asynchronous. You need to, you'll need to fake out the asynchronous stuff because the thing you're testing interacts with the world. The thing you're testing talks to the DOM or talks to the network, but that doesn't mean that you're, you're when you're testing it, it has to do that. When you're testing it, you can isolate it and use promises or just raw callbacks and fake that stuff out. I think um, so. The in this article, I mentioned like um, this this pattern called the humble object. So um, this guy, I think he's an ex Fort worker actually. Gerald Mezaros wrote, wrote this this awesome uh, book called. Um, actually, wait, is he the same guy? I'm getting him mixed up with something with someone else. But I think they're both ex Fort workers. But uh, uh, yeah, so he describes this idea of this humble object, which is trying to move all of your asynchronous stuff into a separate place that's very very simple and doesn't contain any logic and and have the logic part that you want to test be um be synchronous so that goes back to that kind of example i had of the tax calculation like make the business logic sure. of tax calculation separate sure all right well are there any other tricks to this that we haven't talked about before we get to the picks i just want to chime in with saying that i um i think that pete's absolutely right about the idea of trying to look at your code and see how you can separate pieces out into synchronous bits. And then of course there is that underlying caution of if the code is meant to be synchronous, if it's a, if it's an, I mean, if it's meant to be asynchronous, if it's some sort of asynchronous library, obviously that won't work. But for a lot of the unit testing and the the algorithm logic type stuff, it's, that's a really cool idea. Yeah. And there's this, um, this kind of, it's a, it's a specific example of this more broader, a, a, a more broader pattern that, that touches on this is this, um, the idea of hexagonal architectures, um, also called ports and adapters by a very clever guy called Alistair Coburn. It's not pronounced the way it's written. <laughs> uh, anyway, sorry, that was my own personal joke to myself. Um, so <laughs> if you're, if you're an obsessive listener to all of Chuck's podcasts, like I am, there was some, did they, you, you, Chuck, you had a, Guy on the rails, or yeah, two guys Matt, on Matt the Wynn. yeah, talking about this with response with regards to rails, but the same applies to all software. So this is the idea of anything where your app is integrating with a third party thing. So that's like jQuery or um, the DOM or AJAX or whatever. You want to kind of push that to the boundaries of your system and def- and very aggressively isolate the very have explicit this is my code that maps the outside world into my application world and push it out to the boundaries of your system and then all of the the kind of the gooey center of your application doesn't have any implementation any technical stuff in there so it doesn't know about like the idea of ajax calls or the dom or jquery it just knows about application concepts like updating the ui or um you know making asking some repository for information about a user and you know maybe that that user is coming from local storage or maybe that user is coming from um the network but really your your the internals of your application mo- the majority of your application shouldn't be thinking about things like local storage it should be pretty agnostic to that stuff once you get to that point then it makes all of this asynchronous testing a lot easier because you're just dealing with promises or something like that and you can kind of simulate things coming in and out and you don't have to think about the boring technical gunk of like ajax requests or the weird apis in the dom or anything like that mm-hmm. i have this um 
it's me. I, I'm going to take two seconds to get on my soapbox. So I have this theory. So the Rails community went through this slightly painful realization in the last couple of years that um, if you build all of your application in the context of Rails, then, hey, it turns out it's really hard to not have it all be in Rails. And it's really hard to test it quickly. And it's hard to break it up into pieces. Uh, the JavaScript community is going to go through this same process in a few years' time when they suddenly realize, hey, if I implement my entire app in the context of Ember or Backbone or Angular and I want to break this apart into chunks, I can't do it. So this hexagonal architectures that helps you avoid being wedded to a big monorail, monolithic Rails application is also what's going to help the JavaScript community avoid trying to tease apart this huge Ember application or this huge Angular application where everything's welded to everything else because everything knows what framework is in. Yeah, and particularly because both of those frameworks use conventions or they're set up in such a way that code sharing is via a very coupled way. Yeah, yeah. Like like Angular, you build everything in terms of services, right? So even if you have some code that doesn't know, it has no real... Angular specific stuff. It's just like a you know tax calculator. It still like knows about Angular and it has like it's all implemented in terms of an Angular service. When really it should just be a JavaScript kind of module or class or whatever yeah. that um, that has that logic in it. And and then you have some stuff at the edge. This kind of ports and adapters idea. You have this adapter at the very edge that turns it into something that Angular can use. Yeah. But the, the 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 GUI core of tax calculation. Why mm. should that know about Ember or Angular or yeah. anything like that? Yeah, Angular Angular will make that makes that incredibly easy, but the, I think the real problem is that JavaScript itself has no strong module system in place yet. Yeah. So yep. so you end up these frameworks end up needing to create their own ways of locating code and mm. consequently because they have to come up with conventions for locating code in Angular it's a dependency injector and Ember it's a dependency injector Breaking up your app now is coupled to this sort of dependency injector. It's kind of a bummer, but yeah. And I think uh, partly that's I think that's that's a really really good point. It's totally true. I think partly that's the what happens when you get when you use big frameworks. Like if you if you use a lot of small fit for purpose libraries, then this problem tends to be less of a big deal because you're 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 not depending on every on the framework for everything. You're using you know something for dependency injection, some other thing to render to to map, to do data binding or whatever, it becomes yeah. less of an issue. But then yeah. it's a trade-off, right? Because now you have to oh, do totally. stuff yourself rather than yeah. Amber or Angular, just yep. <laughs> Amber or Angular. <laughs> yeah, all the simplicity goes away. You know, Ember, Ember has an interesting thing called resolvers, which kind of lets you pick how you'll load code into their injector, mm. uh, which, which is helpful, you know. I, the problem is relatively going to be unsolved, I believe, until like a true module system gets adopted. Yeah. yeah. I think like definitely uh, Yehuda has a lot of experience of trying to make things in a modular way because that's pretty much what he did with with Rails, right? Was kind of, well, he wrote Merb and then renamed Rail, Merb to Rails. And <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's slightly more complicated than that. But um, <laughs> uh, so, I mean, yeah, like there's obviously very smart people. It's not like these, it's not like, you know, people aren't aware of this issue or that it's a... Oh, totally. It's just yeah. a language. It's a platform problem, I think. Mm, yeah. All right. Well, anything to add before we wrap it up? No, I thought this was actually really an excellent one. I really enjoyed talking about this. 
Yeah, I agree. I- yeah, me too. <laughs> Word. <laughs> I always love talking about this stuff. I could talk about it for. We didn't even go down the rat hole of the test pyramid. Well, I'll, I'll, yeah. Uh, Joe's probably done that on this show a hundred times. Yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go ahead and uh, wrap the show up then. Thanks for coming, Pete. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, it was fun. AJ, do you want to start us off with picks this week? I will do that. So I will make a technical pick, one that I would not have imagined myself picking, but I'm I'm going to have to, even though I'm not entirely sure yet. But I've started using Angular a little late to the game, but late enough that it seems like things are settled and there's lots of tutorials and the material is good and it's not like a, uh, you know, we're definitely not in the stage anymore where it's like, what's this Angular thing? Is it going to work or not? It's it's a real tool that people are using. And so I hopped on a little late, but uh, so far with my experimentation, um, I like it. There are definitely a couple things that don't seem intuitive to me, but there are a lot of things that also seem very intuitive. And I like that I was able to create a polymorphic list of items very easily. So by polymorphic list, I mean, when you look at Amazon and you type in, um, let's say uh, you type in toaster and it's going to come back at you with the brave little toaster, which is a movie and a toaster from uh, that one company that makes all the kitchen stuff. And then it's going to come back at you with maybe some sort of like weird uh, health and beauty product that has toaster in the description, but they're all really different things and you want to render them very differently. And um, my experience with other template systems is that when you want to do something like that, it's, it's complicated. You have to get custom or you, you just have weird conditions and angular has NG switch that makes it like super, super easy to have a list of things that are dissimilar and be able to display them in a way that you want, like you would on Amazon, for example. So that's, that's one thing. Uh, also, Last night, I went to Castle of Chaos, and Castle of Chaos is cool because it's one of the, like, three or four haunts in the U.S. that allows for hands-on terror, as they've kind of trademarked it. So, one of my favorite parts of that was I was in this room where it was very dark, and I thought that I was alone, because some of the rooms have uh, people in them and some of them don't. And so I'm walking through this room and all of a sudden I get tackled and thrown onto the floor. But the floor area, it's, it actually had a beanbag there. So it was like perfectly soft and safe and everything. But the fact that I didn't know that someone was behind me and they just rushed and tackled me and threw me on the floor and started yelling at me was way awesome. Um, <laughs> wow. so if you're in Utah, and there are three castles of chaos. There's one that's up in Riverdale, which is like near uh, Ogden, and one in Salt Lake, and one in Orem, which is by Provo. And it's a little bit expensive. Like normally, I, I don't think you pay quite so much to go to a haunt. These are like twenty five bucks a a piece. But it was an awesome experience. It was a lot longer because most of them you pay like fifteen dollars. You go through in ten minutes. Some guy chases you out with a chainsaw at the end. This one was four separate haunted houses that you get guided through and they each have a different theme to them, but they're all in the same big building. And um, the other ones are like that too. So it was, it was definitely the best haunted house experience I ever had, particularly because I brought a date and she clung to me the entire time. So <laughs> very nice. All right, Merrick, what are your picks? 
So one of my picks is based on today's episode. If you listened to Pete talk about Mocha and how good it is at testing asynchronous JavaScript and you're using Jasmine, you're not totally at loss for that nice callback style syntax. Derek Bailey has written sort of a, a way to get that callback approach inside of Jasmine, which if you already have a bunch of Jasmine code, it's maybe a little bit more viable of an option than switching over to Mocha. Two is this language that everyone's heard of that I'm just kind of exploring. It's called Erlang. They have a lot of interesting things in terms of pattern matching, and it's just been kind of an enlightening uh, thing to just learn, and it's been rather enjoyable. So those are my two picks. Awesome. Actually, wait, one more. I've, I'm sorry, last one is RobotsConf. Chris Williams is like my hero. He's one of the nicest guys on the Internet that I've ever met. Uh, but I'm, I'm so excited to go to RobotsConf. I know Jameson's going, and it's going to be awesome. Is that as cool as it sounds, RobotsConf? We'll see. We're going to be working on robots. It's like a software developer's introduction to hardware. Nice. Yeah, and it's in Florida, so it'll be wonderful. I'm, 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 it's, it's like the first conference that I've like paid my own way all the way through for a while, you know, huh. where nice. I've not had to speak or whatever. All right. Well, I've got one pick. So I've been listening to audiobooks. Uh, it's just a nice way to fit in a little bit of reading when I don't actually have time to read. Um, and the one that I've been uh, listening to lately is called Thou Shalt Prosper. It's by uh, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. And he does talk a bit about his faith in the book, but ultimately it's it's just a terrific um, explanation of why people who are, uh, uh, you know, Jews, be that uh, culturally, religiously, or both, tend to do well in business. And uh, so he talks about just the mindsets and the things like that that come out of his years as a rabbi and talking to people who are doing well for themselves. And so I've been really, really enjoying that and uh, all of the different insights that he has into what makes people successful and wealthy. And so uh, go ahead and give that a listen or a read. And uh, that's all I've got. Pete, what are your picks? My picks, I'm not used to talking so much on a, on this podcast so I normally I spend some time thinking about my picks and I've just been running around trying to figure out what my picks would be but I have figured it out so my first pick is I guess something I already talked about but I'm going to pick it anyway because I do think it's really important for people to to grok this like higher level design and architecture stuff so uh, hexagonal architectures or ports and adapters um, there's a there's an original write-up that Alistair Coburn did I'm not sure if it's necessarily the best now because there's, it, he did it a long time ago. The examples are probably all in Java or something, but it's worth, I'm going to link to, you know, his original article. It's worth doing some reading around this and kind of thinking about how you can apply this to JavaScript. I think JavaScript applications, both client side and server side. My second pick is this thing called uh, Smallest Federated Wiki, which is by Ward Cunningham. So Ward Cunningham, the guy that actually invented the wiki, also kind of just crazy, insanely smart guy who invented like CRC cards and pretty much pair programming and a bunch of different things. So he's been working on this wacky project called Smallest Federated Wiki, which is currently implemented in Node and client-side JavaScript stuff. He just managed to get the NPM module called Wiki, which I'm amazed wasn't already taken. Um, <laughs> no way. Yeah. That's yeah, insane. Sure. Yeah, right? 
I, I don't so, even think I could get my full name in the NPM model right, system anymore. Right. Maybe he, maybe there's some kind of, maybe he had some, some like, uh, some uh, back channel. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, so it's a really crazy system where everyone has their own wiki and you fork other people's wikis and contribute stuff. And then, uh, it stores stuff in local storage and then pushes it up to your local server. And it's, it's like, imagine Git plus wiki plus like on the fly editing plus, oh, and an incredibly uh, powerful plugin system where you can kind of like do visualizations based on random other wiki pages that happen to be in the stack of pages you're looking at. I've been working on it for a while and it's, it's really awesome as a product and he's looking for contributors to help him with, with the JavaScript. He's been learning JavaScript or CoffeeScript actually while he's been doing this. So, um, so yeah, if you, if you want to, and if you want to pair program with Ward Cunningham and get your Ward number to, to one, this is a very easy way of doing it. So I would encourage everyone who's into JavaScript and wants to work on a cool side project to look at that. And, uh, my third pick is Chris Cowell. So he's the, the, we mentioned him a couple of times. He's the, the original originator of Q. He's one of these guys who's just been quietly kicking ass in JavaScript since before anyone was taking JavaScript seriously. He's not like the kind of celebrity geek that's, that like has like flame wars on, on Twitter and people go and like go to see him keynote at conferences. He's just incredibly smart. And has been quietly doing great stuff for a yeah, very, very long Yeah, he's time. like a James Burke. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I just I think he's I think he's great and he's done great things for for the JavaScript community. And then my last pick is a beer because I like picking beers. Uh, I'm going to pick this week saison uh, Rue, which is a uh, so it's a saison beer, which is kind of like these interesting Belgian style. that's kind of got this crazy hop flavors but not like ipa hops like very um almost like bubble gummy yeasty flavors just really really good uh it's good if you if you're if you're not necessarily a beer drinker you should try it and see if you like it this one's good as well because it has rye in there so it has like a little bit of spiciness in there so yeah saison rue i think you can get it pretty much everywhere i think it's an it comes from new york i'm guessing maybe or canada but uh you should be able to find it in your local independent beer store got it cool all right. Well, thanks for uh, coming on the show, Pete. It's kind of weird to talk to you with these other guys, but <laughs> yeah, thank yeah, you. Yeah, a little bit. That was that was fun, man. Yeah, it was super fun. I mean, like I said, I, I really, really love talking about this stuff. So thanks, thanks for having me on. All right. Well, I guess we'll wrap it up. I do need to mention our silver sponsor, and that is Reg Braithwaite and um, JavaScript Allonger. So if you haven't read it, go check it out. It's awesome. And we also did an episode on it, so if you're curious and you want to hear us talk about it for an hour or so, that's a good way to go, too. <laughs> I um, could be wrong, but I think he even made that book free. Uh, it could be. It's, I've heard I that. I think it's free online. I think you can you can pay for it if you want to support him or if you want to have it on your Kindle or something, but I think yeah. you can read it for free on the website. What an awesome guy that guy is. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, let's wrap up the show, and we'll catch you all next week.